Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast, where we are leading conversations in innovation and the global entrepreneurial mindset. In this podcast series, we are exploring the topic of women in technology and innovation, where we shine a spotlight on the remarkable women entrepreneurs, business and technology leaders who are changing the world through industry and innovation. My name is Samantha Walravens, and I'm an adjunct professor at Lehigh University, as well as a journalist and an author with a passion for supporting and advancing women in their professional and personal lives. For those who don't know, the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center in San Francisco. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. So I'm thrilled to introduce our two guests for today. Bari Williams is the VP of Legal Business and Policy Affairs at All Turtles, which is a, an AI, artificial intelligence startup incubator. She is an ardent supporter of women and diversity in the tech industry. She's published articles in the New York Times, Wired Magazine, Fortune Magazine, Fast Company. She was the former senior head legal counsel at Facebook and head of business operations at StubHub. And she has her undergraduate degree from Berkeley and then an MBA from St. Mary's and a JD from UC Hastings. Welcome, Bari. We're thrilled to have you here. And my next guest is Josie Haynes, who is the Platform Engineering Director at Tile, which makes the great devices that are Bluetooth enabled and they help you locate items that are lost. She's a former engineering manager at Apple Computer and the Director of Engineering at Zynga. She also is a, a strong advocate for women and diversity in technology. She mentors girls with the Girls Who Code program, and she's also been a mentor with the Technovation competition. And Josie has her undergraduate degree from Princeton and a master's in computer science from UC Santa Cruz. So welcome to you both. So before we get started with all the you know big questions of the day, like why do we care about diversity? Why does it matter? I wanted to ask you both to tell a little bit about your stories how you got into technology, who influenced you to enter the tech industry, and why have you become an advocate for women and diversity in tech? Uh, well, for me, um, I am a girl from East Oakland, California. I was born and raised in Oakland. I still live in Oakland. And it's interesting to see how much technology has changed, even the city at this point. And one reason as to why I got involved in tech, my dad used to own a store and in the 80s, so again, now we're dating ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it sold Apple computers. And so I was around computers since the time I was right eight years old. And to me, it was just fascinating what it is that you could create with them. And so that was kind of the, the precipice of, you know, my interest and in, in why. Um, and why do I advocate for women in tech and diversity in tech is because without those two things, and sometimes they're intersectional, of course, like here's an example, <laughs> but you will make faulty products and you will miss out on use cases. You will miss out on revenue. And that's the other piece I think is sometimes it's easier to lead with talking about data in terms of demographics and population shifts and how much money someone stands to make or lose. And that is typically when they will listen. It's not a feel good answer, but it's how you can kind of give a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down and the medicine being, you need more of us. Josie. 
Yeah, so, you know, I got my first computer when I was five. Again, I'm going to date myself. I got a Commodore 64 (laughs) in the 80s, and uh, I loved computers when I was growing up. Uh, When I went to college, though, my parents were like, oh, you should be a doctor. So I got a chemistry degree, but three years in, I was like, there's no way I'm going to med school. I'm done with classes. So I got a job as a technical consultant for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And the first thing they do is send you to like a three-month boot camp where you learn to code. And I picked it up really quickly and was soon teaching all my colleagues. And so they sent me to a week-long training camp out here in Silicon Valley to learn a technology that's now dead called Broadvision. But this was 99, middle of the dot-com boom, and I pretty much fell in love with the Valley. Like, just the pace of technology, like all the things people were creating. It was just amazing to be here. And, you know, like you said, there's all this bias, but when you're just like jumping in, you don't notice that, right? So for me, I was just kind of starstruck. So moved out here in early 2000, got my first job in the industry, and pretty much have, you know, worked in the tech industry for 20 years now. And so why am I passionate about diversity and inclusion? Well, you know, it's always been something I've kind of been interested in, especially as a woman in tech and having faced a lot of the challenges that uh, you talked about. Um, But in early 2018, I actually left Apple after working on Siri, and I was very frustrated. I pretty much felt you know, burnt out, and I was done with the tech industry. I I was like, I'm never going to work full-time for a tech company again, and actually went and started my own small business. But, you know, by really taking a step back and reflecting on what's going on, I realized if I walked away, I pretty much would be giving up the ability to really impact the future, because we're literally writing the future a line of code at a time, right? You know, I think back on the first applications I was working on, and I was writing like phone apps for black and white Motorola phones, which were two lines of text. At that time, did I realize that like Apple would release like the iPhone and mobile apps would take over the world? No idea. But yet I was working on the predecessors to that technology. And, you know, technology is impacting all aspects of our future. And yet, like you said, we don't have, like, women and other underrepresented minorities to be able to have the impact they need. And so, you know, I really decided, you know, I want to come back to tech and really have a mission to also help keep other women here in tech with me because one of the sad things and we'll talk about this a little bit in the future is it's not just getting women into tech it's how do we keep women in tech so there's a statistic which is 56 percent of women leave tech after 10 to 20 years so it's not just getting them into the industry it's how do we keep them as well and that's a really really good point we'll get into that but there are two terms that people throw around a lot these days diversity and inclusion. And I've seen over the past five or six years, a lot of the big tech giants in Silicon Valley and around the country uh, creating diversity and inclusion departments, hiring heads of diversity of inclusion. Um, Can we just take a step back and talk about these two terms that I think, I feel like they are almost losing their meaning because they've become buzzwords. And what, so to you, what does the word diversity mean? What does the word inclusion mean? Why should we care? Yeah, um, I am not actually a super fan of the idea of the word diversity, only because it's it's almost been bastardized in a certain way. Like everybody throws everything in the bucket now and calls it diverse. Like now it's 
and those things do count, but it's also starting to become an excuse to hire more of the same, but just saying, oh, well, this person is, you know, this is a, you know, a, a white male engineer, but he has red hair. And this one, <laughs> and this one is a conservative and this one is an independent. And it's like, okay, great. So now we're moving from actual representational diversity, which is what the three of us would be versus cognitive diversity. And it's, if you want to say cognitive diversity, which is valid, but the first argument I always lob back at people is, well, cognitive diversity is the result of representational diversity most of the time. So you can have people who think differently, but also if you have different life experiences, that is going to beget the cognitive diversity that you want. And so diversity to me is kind of like just being counting. It's counting how many women, how many LGBTQ, how many differently abled, how many black people. So it's literally just going through with a checklist to say, oh, okay, do I have somebody from each of these? Okay, I do, done. And inclusion is much harder because it's once, to your point, once you get those people there, how do you keep them and how do you grow them? It isn't just about having, you know, 12 women and, you know, they're all low level, entry level HR managers or something. It's looking at it and making sure that your team is represented not just from a standpoint of checking the box and saying you have 12 women, but also double click on it and look, are they all in marketing? Are they all in HR? Are they all in, like, you have to have representational diversity in each of those groups. And I can't remember the exact step, but the more granular, the more granular the diversity of your teams, also affords more inclusion, but also gives you better results. So it isn't enough to just have 12 women and they all work in one department. You have to have them sprinkled. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the terms that actually starts getting lumped into diversity and inclusion is also belonging. Right. And, you know, I think it's nice that that started to getting added because I think that is the big piece, kind of along with, you know, your with the definitions you gave of diversity and inclusion, which I think are very, you know, valid. You know, I think that belonging piece is something that's definitely missing, right? Mm -hmm. Is, um, you know, you can focus entirely on your pipeline, get a bunch of diverse candidates in the door, but then if your culture doesn't encourage empathy and being able to make mistakes and learning and collaboration, you pretty much are not going to keep them. They're going to leave in six months. And then kind of another thing um, around what you were saying about companies in the Valley hiring a DNI lead. So I actually lead diversity and inclusion at Tile, which is something that everyone looks at me and they're like, you're an engineering director. Why would you also take on that responsibility? And I was like, I volunteered to do it. Actually, when I joined Tile, I went and asked our CEO and VP of people and said, if you want me to join Tile, I want to lead diversity and inclusion as well. And I want it to be part of my responsibilities. I'm not, this isn't going to just be a side thing I do in the evenings. Like, I want people to like understand, hey, this is something I do spend some of my time on. Obviously, my engineering work gets done, right? But, you know, I also, you know, I can come do things like this. I'm flying this afternoon to go give a talk uh, tomorrow, right? The company doesn't just say, oh, do this in your free time, right? And so I think one of the big things about me leading diversity and inclusion is I actually see the challenges the women are facing because 
I face them, right? And also the women engineers at the company, I've worked with them like on coding, so they feel comfortable coming and talking to me about their personal challenges. And so I tend to find out what's going on at the company a lot more than I think if we had like a diversity and inclusion person in an HR role. Um, the other thing I think is important is, you know, people think, oh, diversity and inclusion is something separate from building your team, building your engineering culture. And one of the things I keep telling engineering managers is, you know what? If you want to build the best engineering teams who can build the best products, diversity and inclusion isn't something separate you have to add. It is like the core things you should be focusing on. And so it's really like the things that make you an amazing leader are also the things that are going to create a diverse and inclusive culture. So instead of treating this as something separate you need to invest and how do you make it part of your just like day-to-day -day culture? So I also think, um, I always, I say diversity is a four-legged stool because if you're only focusing on one segment and most people, to your point, they're hiring DNI leaders and then they're just worried about like counting the butts in the seats. <laughs> and you can look and see how, how much this actually means to a company if they are thinking about that in terms of their board members, their suppliers, their customers, and their employees. And if you're not looking at it holistically in that way, then it, is it really even impactful? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and the other piece that I think I prefer, the reason why I prefer the word inclusion, and I also like belonging, is because everybody has a story about a time when they felt excluded from something. And that applies across the board. And I feel like oftentimes when you say the word diversity, it, particularly if it's if it may be white men, their eyes just glaze over because it's like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. It does because we need advocates in rooms that we're not in. But it also applies when you talk about inclusion because I'm sure that that person has a story about when he felt excluded from something. And I feel like if you can come to a place where you can see the common ground there, you get much further. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a talk that I gave at Grace Hopper, and there the audience, you know, is mostly women, so I really focused on, you know, what are some of the things they can do to stay in the tech industry, like building resilience, making sure they're finding those inclusive environments, you know, supportive bosses, but, you know, I'm, I, I was actually, I've been reworking the speech to give it um, for an audience that's going to be mostly engineering leaders and managers, which means it's going to be mostly men, and for them, I really tell them, you know what? What? you have the largest impact in your company of deciding whether diversity and inclusion is going to be a thing because the CEO and the exec staff can talk about it all day long and the individual contributors can say, hey, we want this. But as an engineering manager, you're doing the bulk of the hiring, you're setting up the job postings, you're determining the interview process, you're really setting the tone and the culture of your team once those people are on board. So. As leaders, it's like, don't think about diversity and inclusion as something extra you might have to think about. Think about it as like, this is the impact you're having on your team. And it's how you build the best teams to make the best products. Uh, 2015 McKinsey report, Why Diversity Matters, which I'm sure you've read. And there was an addendum follow-up report as well. But one thing that uh, the report found is that 
companies with diverse teams, gender diverse, race diver- racial diversity, perform better financially. They have higher ROIs, returns on investments. On the other side of the coin, the flip side of the coin, there are some really big problems that happen when diversity is missing in teams that are developing technology, in teams that are making decisions. One example is, again, back in 2015, Google Photos tagged, do you remember that? Google Photos tagged uh, black people, pictures of black people, and tagged them as gorillas. And because their AI, their algorithm, was not programmed, not enough data was put into the algorithm to train it to recognize that these are African-American people, these are not gorillas. So there's some really big, big pitfalls, big problems that can happen when technology is not created by uh, a diverse group of developers and managers. Can you guys give any examples of the work that you've seen or have done that where this lack of diversity actually causes problems in the technology? Oh, yes. <laughs> I could go on for hours. But here's my biggest example is so voice assistants in general are actually less accurate with women's voices and other underrepresented minorities. Actually, people who are black, it's even worse, in fact. Um, and the reason is, you know, most of these companies, they test their own products internally, right? And if you don't have a diverse workforce to test your products, you don't actually you can't know if it's not going to work for you know those individuals and you know even you know I, so i worked on siri and siri sports actually defaults to men's sports if you ask siri like what the top teams are it only gives men's sports because the entire sports team was men and they were like oh people don't really care that much about women's sports right and it's just it's like little things that make these decisions it's like okay so maybe sports isn't that important but yeah you know you have you know somebody who maybe doesn't know and says, you know, asks their phone, hey, what are the top, you know, basketball teams? And all of a sudden they just see men. Like, what does that say, right? Yeah, I think it's uh, Amazon's facial recognition technology uh, misidentified members of the Congressional Black Caucus for felons. So I guess the benefit there is, you know, at least they were people, <laughs> but they were the wrong people. They, they were the wrong black people. So it's also something as simple as the technology that's used when you are going through the airport. And my hair, when my hair is, my hair is naturally curly. And when I've just washed it, it goes off at TSA screening, and which is just, you know, my presumption is that that's probably because it was not the technology was not created by a man who may be familiar with naturally curly hair. And so it's wanting to understand like, this is not, this product is faulty and here's why and how, but there's, it's even something as, as easy as, um, as marketing. If you're not thinking about how something is going to be marketed to a certain population or group, you could also completely, completely mess up. Um, example of that was last year, I believe it was Ancestry DNA. They had this. Uh, they had this advertising campaign, which they literally took down in one day because so many people complained about it on Twitter. Where they were essentially romanticizing slavery and this black woman running away. But the whole tagline was, you know, let's run away and be together up north. And it was something like, and the story could have ended here, but you wanted to find out more about your family. And I just thought, this is really tone deaf. Like you didn't ask any 
employee, like, hey, maybe this is a problem. And that's the other piece where if you don't have the employees, you should be proactively thinking, okay, well, we should probably have a supplier who can look at some of this collateral. And if you would have had a, a you know, a black marketing consultant would have told you immediately, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> this is how much money you're going to lose if you do this. Actually, and another one that's actually impacting us today as we speak is something interesting I learned. So radio frequencies and the amount of uh, frequency when something is being recorded was defined for radio bands, and I think it was in the 60s. And the guy who defined it didn't account for the higher ranges of women's voices, and in fact said, oh, they're an abnormality that we don't need to account for. And so when women are, you know, on radio or being recorded a lot of times they're told you know lower your voice and speak more slowly and that's so we don't sound distorted when we're being recorded because these things that were defined in the 60s these radio bands they're still today like nobody's gone and changed any of this yeah and why is siri and alexa why are all the personal assistants with female names and female voices right it's kind of embedded into the uh I guess the mentality and the what the right. the creators, the developers um, mindset. Yeah, and then another example that's a lot more like life and death is actually women tend to get misdiagnosed for heart attacks much more than men because men have very what would be considered traditional signs of having a heart attack that is what is like in all the literature but women actually have much more subtle signs technically usually when they're having heart attacks so yeah there's it, women can die more from heart attacks and other diseases, yeah, because they are getting misdiagnosed more. So diversity matters. We know why it matters. We know the problems and complications. If we don't have it, um, we, we've seen all the efforts over the past 10 years with the Girls Who Code program, with the Grace Hopper celebration, with the NCWIT Aspirations in Computer program for high school girls, with all the diversity and inclusion uh, programs started by tech companies, yet, Still, the numbers are so low. So the women hold 57% of professional jobs, yet only 20% of technical jobs, tech jobs and computing jobs, and only 11% of leadership positions in Silicon Valley. And for black women, it's worse. Black and Latina women, women hold 12% of tech jobs and less than 1% of leadership positions. So with all of this hoopla and all of this, this energy around diversity and inclusion and getting more women and people of color into tech, what, why are the numbers still so low? Um, I, I tend to believe that it's, I think one of the stats is also it's 52% of employees are in, in tech are referrals. And so you refer who you know and who you know typically is going to be similar to you. So I think a lot of it is people back channel for jobs. They don't just do it in tech. They do it everywhere. But it's it's a lot, it's to me seems to be more the norm. And so when this person may say, oh, hey, I really need an, an engineer who's familiar with this particular language, you could have a friend who can do that. And it could be a guy and you're just like, hey, I'm going to refer, you know, Bob, because I know he can do this. I know how easy it is. I actually, that's how I got my job at Facebook is a law school classmate wanted to switch legal teams. And she contacted me and said, hey, don't, don't you do this? I was like, yeah, I do. So very easy to just do that and kind of overlook 
other people who may be raising their hands, jumping up and down, saying, pick me, pick me, because you already know someone or you worked with them previously or they're your friend. And so I think a lot of it is based upon that. But I also feel that people default to there's a pipeline problem and that actually isn't the case. Um, like I've heard people uh, complain about the lack of of black engineers. And I said, well, has anybody ever contacted National Society of Black Engineers? There's like a whole group <laughs> out there for it. Um, tech companies are not recruiting from HBCUs that have engineering programs because the answer is always, well, we don't want to lower the bar or I've never heard of that school. Is it any good? Or it, And sometimes it's just, you know, to get something you don't have, you have to do something you haven't done. And that means stepping outside of your comfort zone. That means don't just hire from Stanford and Berkeley and MIT. That means going to North Carolina A&T, which graduates thousands of black engineers every year. But people don't want to do that. And so the answer is to essentially just cover it up and say, oh, it's a pipeline. There, there are enough women getting STEM degrees, so why bother? I think it's a couple things. A, since like we were talking about earlier, diversity and inclusion is such a buzzword, I think a lot of companies kind of do lip service to diversity yep. and inclusion. They're like, oh, see, we have a women's program. We do, a, we do an event every month and, and do this. But then when you actually are looking into the culture and, you know, the actions people within the company are taking, they're not really aligned with diversity and inclusion. Um, uh, then, you know, there's other challenges too, right? Um, you know, how, how do, it, so this was interesting, you know, so you talked about, you know, getting women into technology. So I believe it was Stanford, if not, it was Harvard, uh, two winters ago did a research study and they were looking at um, why women were getting, finally the, the curve started going up again because it has been going down, but women are finally starting to get more CS degrees, but they're not seeing the numbers rise in the valley. And it turned out when they did their research that when they went and saw what companies were doing when they went and recruited at universities, the women they brought were only the recruiters who were handing out the swag. They only brought like male engineers. And then when, you know, they talked about like the culture and all the things they talk about, oh, hey, we have cool perks, like we get free dinner at night. And you know, the women a, don't see themselves in here, and then B, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I want to start a family. You mean I need to be at work at nine o'clock at night having dinner with my coworkers? And so it doesn't encourage them to actually come into the industry. Um, and then obviously there's the whole challenge like, hey, you get them in, but now we've still got all these people leaving tech, right? So it's not only getting more women and underrepresented minorities into tech, it's how do we keep them in tech once they've come here? Well, let's talk a little bit about that and the retention issue. So you said 56% of women leave technology careers mid-career, between 10 and 20 years into their career. That's a big number. It's twice the number of, of men that leave tech. Um, when I was researching Geek Girl Rising, I met with Tracy Chow, who was an engineer at Pinterest, and she told me um, that she had been through a lot at that company. It was a great company, but she said as an engineering manager, um, she would after you know after a long work day she wanted to go to the gym but she said her team members would want to go out for beers and they never invited her 
because they were all guys. She was leading a team of, of male engineers, and they just never thought that she'd want to go. So what Tracy did was she said, okay, fine, if they're going to do this, well, what I'm going to do is start a happy hour on premise. So I'm going to get people to stay here and kick it off, and we're going to have you know drinks and dinner and everything at Pinterest, which she started. But talk a little bit about implicit bias and she called it you know like death by a thousand cuts yep. it's like the little things that you don't even realize are happening like um you know your team goes out for drinks without you or you know the google example susan farrell said that her you know, the manager got leather jackets but they couldn't find one in a, a women's size for her so they said oh whatever she's not going to care well let's get it for the guys little things like that that over time really start to make an impact on your on your Mental it health with your psyche and messes yeah. with your psyche. So talk about implicit bias and what, what this means. Yeah. I, um, I actually had that happen to me at a former employer. Um, they all went to the Warriors game and we would have conversations about my team was, it was three men and me. And we would have conversations about basketball games. And it was interesting because I asked my manager, why didn't you all ask me to go? And I said, well, You've never worked with that outside counsel. I said, but I was a Warriors intern <laughs> when I was in college, so clearly I like basketball. And I should have been working with that outside counsel. But you presume that I don't want to go because I do have two children. And so you, you're, you make the decision for me. Having people want to make the decisions for you, I also know of women who were not offered assignments because it involved travel. And so it's like, well, if you have kids, you're not going to want to travel. Why are you making that presumption? If that is going to be something that helps me ascend in my career, why would I not want to do it? It's better for my kids in the long run. And it's just like a, it's almost like a blind spot. And the other pieces to that are like the microaggressions in the sense of, I, I had another manager ask me, did I get into Berkeley before or after affirmative action? And I'm just like, who says stuff like this out loud? Like, I, you shouldn't even think it. But you definitely shouldn't say it. And you're a lawyer, so you should know better. <laughs> and the answer was after, thank you. But even if I had, it's not going to keep me in school. I still have to do the work and make the grades. And it's just having somebody completely not understand your experience or how they can say things and how they're received, is it is exactly death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, and... You know, one of the things I'm really grateful for at Tile is we actually have like 50-50 female-male uh, representation across the company, which is awesome for me. I'm actually not always the only woman in the room. But I also lead all of our partner integrations, which means I am commonly going to visit partners. And there, I am very commonly the only woman in a room of 20 guys. Mm. And even over the last couple of years, it has been fascinating some of the things I have been asked. I had a partner meeting where I was asked to go grab lunch. Um, yeah, I was sitting at the edge and they're like, oh, it's lunch break time. Can you go grab all the lunches that are outside wow. the door to bring them in? I was like, no, I, I can't. I did a presentation. I spent an hour doing an engineering presentation, explained our entire backend architecture. And then the partners were joking around during the break about, oh, how much work it was going to be. But they didn't look at me when they said, oh, you're going to be doing a lot of work. They looked at my male coworker next to me, who wasn't even in the same team and wouldn't actually be doing any of the work, right? And, you know, people interrupt women all the time. You know, ideas get appropriated. And, you know, it's just... 
it, 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 I don't know any women who've been in tech for 20 years like I have who have not faced these challenges. Like usually you're facing it in your first couple of years, right? And so that's one of the things I tell women is you really need to build those networks early to really find support because especially as you go up in your career, you're going to be more and more the only one in the room. So that it's a great segue to my next question, which is advice. So what advice do you have Building your networks early is a great one. Like having that sort of posse of support. What about the role of mentors and sponsors? What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so I, um, the the role of mentors, mentors can come from anywhere. Meaning, you know, it's almost like having a personal board of directors to help manage your life because people are good at various things. And a mentor is somebody that can guide you, help you, Um, explain their experience and how they got to where they are. A sponsor is someone who is going to rally for you and advocate for you internally. And that's the difference. Sometimes they could be the same person if that person works at your company. But more often than not, I I find that sponsorship is severely lacking, particularly for women. Um, And then to a certain extent, uh, everything that happened with Me Too it kind of makes men even more scared now in terms of sponsoring women and doing things with them one-on-one because they don't want any perception of impropriety. So I think that that's one key distinction and one thing to think about. But I would say network sideways too. Don't just network up and find a mentor and a sponsor because I was able to, to land a role because of somebody that I went to law school with. It wasn't, you know, me knowing someone or asking a mentor it was you know use use the people that you have around you because you never know who that person is going to become that person could be someone who ends up calling you and saying hey I want to switch legal teams can you help can you backfill my position or it could be someone who is creates the next greatest startup and asks you to be a co-founder so it's important to have uh, mentors and sponsors and level up but it's also important to network sideways and the other thing i would remind you is just you don't have to be in and of a community or a a particular group in order to advocate for that community Um, i sat in a product review once and we were going around looking at how fantastic this this product was and everyone kind of was patting themselves on the back and i said yeah it is awesome but how does a blind person use this because they have to look at the interface. And if I can't see, I can't use this. So, and no one had considered that or thought about it because everybody in the room, of course, was, was fully able-bodied. But it's, you know, I'm not blind yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something that, you know, you don't have to be a member of a particular group to make sure that their voice is respected and heard in a room in which they're not present. Yeah, and I think kind of, you know, along those lines of, you know, how, how do we think about this? Um, you know, the uh, mentoring is something that I think is so important. And, you know, building your network, like I said, but you have to be, in, you can be intentional about building your network. And, um, and so what do I mean by that, right? Actually, you know, if when you do your planning for the week, 
think about who you're going to contact the next week. You know, create a spreadsheet of the people you want to network with and keep track of when you last talked to them so you know when to reach out to them next. And then kind of along the lines of what you were talking about with building your, you know, personal boardroom, you know, the there's an awesome website called personalboardroom.com that actually kind of talks about some of the different personalities you want on your board of directors. And I think it's a great exercise to kind of think about who are the people you want, right? You want somebody who's like a cheerleader for you, but you also want somebody who's going to tell you stuff straight, right? And tell you what you're doing wrong. And so you need like all of those different people in your life. And then Josie, you talked about resilience, and I think that's a really uh, important, I mean, we've heard a lot about resilience growing, you know, in the school system, but resilience in the workplace, I think, is a really important topic because women are dropping out and, they're, and they do face microaggressions and worse. And um, so tell me about this resilience, how, you know, which is, you know, pick yourself up and, and move on and stick with it. Don't quit when the times get rough. But t- tell me a little bit about what how you would describe the resilience. Yeah, so, you know, the reason I think resilience is so important is obviously, you know, like we're all here fighting to keep women intact and, you know, hopefully things will start getting better. But to get to 50-50 equality, we're going to keep suffering these microaggressions, right? These challenges. And we need resilience to overcome those. And so I think it's actually sad. We don't re- teach resilience at in the workplace, right? Can you give me an example? of resilience? What does it look like? You know, so it's even things like standing up to speak up for yourself. So there's this great example uh, that Rishma Srijani gives in Brave Not Perfect. She's the head of uh, Girls Who Code. And she talks about this research study. They had a room of boys and a room of girls. And they gave both of them lemonade that had salt in it and said, oh, this lemonade's super tasty. Try it. The boys took a sip and said, ew, gross, this thing sucks. The girls politely drank it down and didn't say a word. Afterwards, the researchers asked the girls, why, why didn't you say anything? And they're like, oh, we were being polite. And so that's one of the things, you know, we're taught as girls to be perfect and poised and polite, but then you get into the workforce and that like just shatters because, you know, the first time somebody gives you some snarky comment in a code review, like, you're going to be heartbroken. And so, for me, resilience is very tied into that network piece, right? Because you need other people you can talk to and share the things you're going through and have them be like, hey, I went through this too. Um, I do a lot of mentoring and I don't know how many women I've had just tell me, thank you for sharing one of your stories because that made the biggest impact to me in like feeling like somebody else is going through this challenge because you can very commonly end up feeling like I'm alone and isolated and nobody else is going through this. Josie, Bari, thank you so much for joining us. You are such an inspiration. Thank you for sharing your insights, your advice, your wisdom. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu 
or follow us on Instagram at Lehigh NASDAQ Center.